everyone and welcome to episode 27 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I am your host today. Today's episode is going to be about Queen Nanny of the Maroons, the Maroon leader of Jamaica who freed uh, thousands of slaves um, from the British and also led rebellions against the British and, you know, Maroon Town still exists in Jamaica today. So if that legacy doesn't tell you enough... Um, then stay tuned for this episode because we'll be discovering more about Queen Nanny. And before we go into, you know, the episode and more about the Maroons firstly um, as a people and as a culture and then into to Nanny and what she did in Jamaica, we're going to uh, give a shout out to another charity that is doing the work um, for women as it is still Women's History Month this week. I think following on from last week where I said... Um, the charity Reclaim the Streets was to be donated to following what was happening in Britain with Sarah Everard um, and her murder and the situation in Clapham. However, following on from the the vigil in Clapham, uh, where those organisers of of that movement, you know, decided not to then go to the vigil because of the fines that were going to be dished out by the police um, and leaving women that had been, I think, in, in a way led to believe that this vigil would be a safe space for them um, to go to that vigil and they would not be there as leaders um, where you have movements such as Sisters Uncut who were there and have been doing tremendous work in the past two weeks to um, protest against the police crackdown bill, which will basically um, not allow us to protest or have the right to protest um, freely. We will have to have, you know, a special grant which would be requested at the Home Secretary Priti Patel's um, command. Um, and I don't really want to be in in that position. And Sisters Uncut have been doing the work in this past week they've been protesting outside of Parliament um, and they haven't stopped putting pressure on the government and the police crackdown bill has actually been delayed. Um, obviously, it's not a victory, and they've said it's not a victory, um, but they won't stop until until the, they kill the bill, essentially. Um, you know, we have to increase the resistance, and we have to build a movement. And I just think it's interesting, again, that women are doing this work. Um, not to say that it's only women, um, but having a movement that's born out of something that started with violence towards women, Um, not just Sarah Everard, but black women, Asian women. You know, there is a lot of violence at the moment in society that is being highlighted by the media. To have this group doing the groundwork, doing the labour in order to make us have a better future where we are able to protest about the things that we don't agree with in society we live in a democracy so for our right to protest to be taken away is absolutely atrocious um and they are doing this work so i would say you know donate to them or or just raise awareness i think um when it comes to this police crackdown bill this bill has to be killed you know in this podcast alone we've looked at so many instances of where protest has led to Um, success and justice you know the mangrove nine case um the brockwell three just to to name two um but we we rely on protests i think especially in black communities to have our voices heard um protest is the voice of the marginalized and the silence um and i think it's really important that that's not taken away so sisters uncut is the organization that i will be highlighting this week um, in Women's History Month for the work that they are doing and have been doing, not just this week and last week um, because of the bill, but the work that they've been doing historically 
um, has been incredible. So I will put their details on my socials um, if you would like to, to donate or raise awareness or do what you can for this organisation and movement. Okay, so as I said, today's episode will be about Queen Nanny of the Maroons. Now, I think if you're Jamaican or know anything about Jamaican history, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about because um, Queen Nanny is literally on the money. Um, a $500 bill in Jamaica is called a nanny and you know her legacy is very clear in Jamaica she's the only uh, female national hero um yeah Jamaica's only national heroine and she is revered in that country I would say and that legacy has been long in its creation and building because the respect and reverence for her has not always been there however it's there now and I feel like she's probably one of the most respected women in Jamaican history. Um, of course, there are others, but, you know, she's the first one that comes to mind when I think about Jamaica. Now, Queen Nanny was an African woman. Um, she was born in West Africa in the region of Ghana, or that would now be called Ghana. Um, and with Queen Nanny, um, there are kind of two versions, I'd say, to every story about her life because African history is traditionally passed down through you know an oral tradition it's spoken and not necessarily written sometimes there can be two or three versions of a story and I don't want you to think that that you know reduces the validity of any story because I think the same point still stands and in this case that she was a great military leader and she was a great um, resistor of British imperialism even in a country that you know wasn't necessarily hers and I think despite the fact that there might be two versions of most events because when I've done this research I have tapped into oral histories as well I've watched videos of people in Jamaica speaking about Queen Nanny of tour guides and of things that I've been told growing up um, as a Jamaican in Britain from family members in Jamaica uncles aunts from what they've had to say about Queen Nanny these are the traditions that are passed down um, and have been taken from Africa to the Caribbean and to us in Britain and I think sometimes in academia, oral histories are often said to be not as valid or not real history. Um, and I would like to push back against that idea. And so today I, I didn't read any books um, for this episode. I relied solely on oral histories, except for one section of this podcast where I'm going to read an extract um, from a book that I read a while back. Um, because it is very relevant, I think, and, and does really summarise... Um, I think the legacy of Nanny more so than any stories about her life. And so I just wanted to stress the importance of the traditions of oral history in this podcast, especially when we are looking at African and, and Caribbean history um, in the early days. And I also want to say that just because there might be two versions of events for some of the events that I speak about, it doesn't denote or detract from Nanny's greatness and Queen Nanny's legacy. So the first point that has two um you know questionable potential um stories is the fact that you know queen nanny was definitely born from the region of ghana um in around 1868 however whether she was from um the akan um, ethnic group or the ashanti ethnic group is unknown but definitely um a ghanaian ethnic group and i think most people do say the ashanti um, group um, and she was brought brought to Jamaica um, during the transatlantic slave trade. So again, it's not 
really sure. We're not sure whether she was kidnapped, although most people say she was kidnapped alongside her brothers and brought as an enslaved woman to the island of Jamaica. However, some people have argued that she's come, she came freely, um, as a free woman, that is. But then the questions of whether, you know, how she would have got to Jamaica freely and why she would have gone to Jamaica freely um, are questionable. Um, I think it's very much more likely that she was enslaved um, and found her freedom on the island when she rebelled with her brothers and escaped. So before I get into to Queen Nanny's story, I'm going to tell you about a little bit about Jamaican history. Not too much, because if you've listened to the Ray and Nephew episode, you'll remember that we went into quite a lot of depth with um, the history of colonial Jamaica. Um, it being colonised by the Spanish first and then the British later. Um, but we're going to talk about maroon history. Um, because there weren't just Maroons in Jamaica and the Maroons were a community of people of the um, Ashanti ethnic group in Ghana that were moved um, to Caribbean islands and the Americas as well, the southern states in America, um, through the transatlantic slave trade. So the Maroons, as we've said, they were enslaved Africans and they often escaped from their colonisers and in the early days it would have been the Spanish, Um, they escaped their captors and they would often set up their own communities in the woods or forests of the islands that they were on. Or they would link with the indigenous peoples already on the island, so the Arawaks or the Tanos, um, who were there prior to the Spanish or the British, um, and who actually, you know, were the original inhabitants of the Caribbean, um, of, well, Jamaica, not all the Caribbean islands, but primarily Jamaica. Um, So... The Maroons were called the Maroons because they were secluded from outsiders, i.e. marooned, um, and they often hid in forests and caves um, in Jamaica and on on Caribbean islands. Maroon communities actually were across the Caribbean in Haiti. There were Maroons, and actually um, their rebellion preceded the Haitian Revolution. Um, Many years before that, it was their resistance that also led to kind of the possibility of the Haitian Revolution in some ways. There were Maroons in Cuba, St. Vincent, Puerto Rico, Dominica, Guyana, Panama, Suriname and Colombia. And I think there were a lot of links between the Maroons in Suriname and the Maroons in Jamaica. There were also Maroons in Mexico um, and along the Amazon River Basin to the southern United States in Florida and the Carolinas. Um, So these Maroon communities were popping up in many different islands and in the Americas as well. Um, And they just were simply rebelling and resisting um, colonial rule um, and escaping their captors um, so that they could be free. And, you know, these communities obviously were built on community values. You know, they had to look out for one another. They are fighting a common enemy and antagonising a common enemy. Um, Planters and, and slave plantation owners were scared of the Maroons in Jamaica, especially because they knew that they knew the land way better than they as colonisers would ever know it. They had specific military training and tactics that they were passed on from, you know, their time in Africa, obviously, being Africans. And also the fact that they, you know, had nothing to lose really as Maroons. They were simply trying to be free and also trying to free as many people as possible but they also had to survive. And we're going to talk about some of their survival stories and tactics afterwards. But because of their desire and need to survive, primarily finding food, they would often raid plantations. They would often go there and take the food and take people if possible, if they could free them. 
So, you know, they were really antagonizing these planters um, and they were really not just resisting and rebelling, but they were also kind of attacking in some ways. Um, but they were skillful warriors and skillful fighters. Um, and Nanny, Queen Nanny is no exception. On most islands and in most places, um, as I said, the Maroons were warriors and fighters. Um, colonizers often try to starve them out of existence by implementing kind of like famines or trying to cut off their food supplies. However, the Maroons um, continued to grow their population by bringing in other um, enslaved people who had escaped or helping them escape. Um, going to plantations, as I said, raiding their food supplies, harassing the planters who really did fear the Maroons. Um, that is definitely not to be underestimated. Um, in the case of the British, when they eventually came to fight the Spanish um, and then colonised Jamaica, Francis Drake, um, he enlisted the Maroons, actually, due to their knowledge of the land when fighting the Spanish. Now, you might be thinking, well, why did the Maroons help him? Well, the Spanish, as colonisers, were awful um, and they were one of the most brutal empires, um, when we think about um, people being enslaved um, and the treatment of them, not to say any other colonisers were, were better per se, but they were especially brutal, the Spanish. Um, and the Maroons, you know, started their fight against the Spanish. That was their first battle because that was who they were enslaved by initially. Um, and so they helped the British um, fight the Spanish uh, for Jamaica and for control of that. And whilst you might be thinking, well, why did they do that? Um, that's not a question I can answer, to be quite honest. However, I think just understanding how brutal the Spanish were, um, I think they would have just wanted some kind of change, potentially. A lot of the Maroon communities were vanquished on the other islands um, and they were wiped out overall, just like the native people, for the most part, were also wiped out. However, in Jamaica, they did really stand strong and steadfast and specifically because of the environment in Jamaica and the land layout is not very easily accessible from the outside. So if you think of Jamaica as a really small island, and then you think of the coast being obviously all around the island where ships would come in, um, trade would happen on those coastal areas. But then the internal parts of the island are very hilly, they're very mountainous um, and they're very difficult to navigate if you don't know where you're going. And so from the outside to get into the interior of the island would have been very difficult. It would have been very isolating and it wouldn't be something you could do in vehicles. So these colonisers would have to go there if they tried to on foot, holding their weapons, which would have been heavy because this, this wasn't sophisticated weaponry that we have today. Um, and so that alone would have tired them out. Um, and then they would have been going against the Maroons, who know the land really well, who can set traps, who can hide out, who can, you know, preempt their attacks. And so that living situation for the Maroons um, led them to be quite an autonomous community and a constant threat to the British once they had taken over from the Spanish because Britain simply didn't have a clue. You've got to think about all these colonisers colonising these countries and islands. They actually don't even know what the islands look like or the countries look like. They've never even been to the entirety of these islands and these regions, yet they think they can have the power. And they did. Um, managed to take power and colonise these whole, whole countries and land masses. It's absolutely insane to me, but I think the maroon resistance in Jamaica is something that should always be known and taught because it's just so interesting and so different um, to the narratives that we are often fed 
that these countries and islands were colonised. And until this day, the Maroon community in Jamaica do not fall under the jurisdiction of Jamaica because when Jamaica got their independence, the Maroons had already sorted out a treaty um, with the British. Sorry, this is a bit of a spoiler. It's meant to be at the end of the episode. But they had a treaty with the British... um, that said they were to be autonomous, um, one set of maroons anyway. We'll get on to, to what happened to the other maroons later. Um, but, yeah, even to this day, they aren't really under the Jamaican government. Um, they deal with things as a community um, and as an isolated and autonomous group of people in Jamaica. So, as I've mentioned, Queen Nanny of the Maroons, of the Jamaican Maroons, was born in West Africa in the region of Ghana in 1686, um, allegedly of the um, Ashanti ethnic group. Um, And I think this is probably the most likely because of the traditions that she followed and passed on were of the Ashanti people. Um, She was captured with her brothers um, and sent to Jamaica, formerly known at the time as Santiago under the Spanish. Um, And then when the British invaded and captured Jamaica, it was renamed as Jamaica. Um, As I've said, there were the Arawak and Tonos people who were the indigenous people there. Um, And once nanny and her brothers actually had escaped from the plantation that they were uh, put on to work in St Thomas um she found herself um a free woman not legally free but free um and working alongside the indigenous people um to form independent communities so as i've said her and her brothers escaped they managed to escape their area of um saint thomas where the plantation was and they escaped to an area called now called anyway the blue mountains which are a little bit north of the parish of saint thomas um and it sparked actually the beginning of rebellions across the island so queen nanny and her brothers escaped her brothers were called cujo johnny Kompong, and kwao And they all settled in different areas, actually, um, of Jamaica and formed different maroon communities because they realised that they couldn't all be in one kind of maroon group. They had to keep the communities small and and many um, because, you know, there would be more chance of them being able to find other enslaved people that needed to join them or to raid other plantations and not have everyone's cover blown if one person got caught you know the idea was that nobody else would get caught it would be only that person unfortunately but these were few and far between and i'm going to tell you about the first maroon war in 1720 queen nanny having settled in the area called the blue mountains a town that was later given the name nanny town it had a really great strategic location because it overlooked stony river Um, which had about a 270-metre ridge, which is about 900 feet. Um, So a surprise attack from the British couldn't really happen because they had the vantage point in terms of overlooking um, the area that they were inhabiting. Um, And so for the Maroons, um, you know, Nanny's obviously a hero and a leader, a spiritual leader, a military, military leader and a community leader. Um, And I use the term community quite loosely because we're not thinking about community in the way we think about it in maybe Britain or in the Western world. Um, I think in the context of the Maroons in the Caribbean, it is slightly different. So, um, you know, the British, they captured Nanny Town on many occasions, but they could never hold it um, because of the guerrilla warfare um, tactics that the Maroons would use. Um, They couldn't beat them. 
Uh, they waged successful wars against British colonial forces over a decade. And this was a long-standing battle um, because the Maroons would simply not back down. Their resistance was so strong and they were so adamant in it that they were to be free, that they could not simply um, be captured by the British. So Nanny Town was eventually abandoned because obviously for part of, you know, the Maroons are constantly under attack, it might be time to, to move on um, and inhabit a new area of the island. Uh, the Windward Maroons in the Windward area is a part of Jamaica. They are now under the command of Nanny, but they moved to New Nanny Town. Um, and so between 1728 and 1734, during that first Maroon War, which obviously the Maroons won, you don't ever hear about the, Maro the Maroon Wars, do you? Because Britain didn't win. <laughs> Other Maroon settlements, and there were many, because as I've said, her brothers, her four brothers, all set up different Maroon areas. And there were also, you know, pre-existing Maroon settlements and areas across the island. Um... They were often attacked, obviously, um, and sometimes, you know, the Maroons would win. Normally, the Maroons would win, especially um, the Maroons under Nanny. According to some accounts, in 1733, many Maroons of Nanny Town actually travelled across the island to unite with the Leeward Maroons. In 1734, um, a Captain Stoddart attacked the remnants of Nanny Town, which was situated on one of the highest mountains on the island, so the only path available was really steep, really rocky and really difficult literally not wide enough for two people to to walk abreast it was so narrow and so steep um so that ravine which was kind of like a cockpit the maroon used like decoys to trick the british into ambushes you know they would just wrap themselves up in leaves and in nature so that they could blend in with the surroundings and jump out and attack the british luring them into a false sense of security maroons could run into the view of british um, and into the direction of fellow maroons who were hidden and then would attack um and so the British kept failing these ambushes and losing, and many British generals were killed by the Maroons in their failed attacks. Um, and so they eventually retaliated. And whilst there are records um, from planters and colonisers on the island that would say that, you know, the um, British, like, military people and the uh, captains would... Yeah, they were getting the Maroons, they'd killed few... Um, the numbers were only always in single digits, um, whereas, you know, the Maroons actually freed around a thousand enslaved people. And you might be thinking, oh, that's not a lot. But when you understand the size of Jamaica as an island being so, so small, those numbers are monumental. Eventually, I think the British um, forces on the island actually just decided to stop trying to fight them. Um, and I think they realised that they could actually use them um, to help them protect themselves from an attack from the Spanish or the French, who, again, were big colonisers in the region. The French, having colonised islands like Haiti, Martinique, and the Spanish um, Cuba. And so the British decided that instead of fighting them, they could use them. And so they proposed treaties with the Maroons. Now, as I've said, there's several Maroon groups across the island. You know, Queen Nanny is in charge of one of them. Um, and her brothers are leaders of some of the other ones. So in 1739, the British signed a treaty with Kujo, and this, you know, allowed them then to kind of barter with the other Maroons um, with less favourable treaties because they kind of realised that, oh, we've got one now. And so that treaty um, was followed by a treaty with the Windward Maroons in 1740. The British governor of Jamaica signed that treaty um, alongside with them, um, and that was Cow 
who was in charge of those uh, maroons um, and he later became a leader of Crawfordstown. So the treaties basically, those treaties specifically didn't make mention of how much land would be allocated to the maroons. These treaties were basically acknowledging the maroons as independent and free people on the islands. However, they also made meant that the maroons could no longer help um, runaway slaves and they had to turn them in. Um, and also help capture any runaway slaves. Now, you might be thinking, why in the world did they do that? Well, they were sellouts. In my personal and humble opinion, um, they sold out. And I can understand why, and I wasn't there, so I can't say what I would have done in that situation necessarily. But essentially, in order to kind of keep peace and to protect themselves, they in ways sold out their brothers and sisters that were, were still enslaved on the island. And and you'll note that I haven't said that Queen Nanny signed a treaty um, at that point, but a year later, so 1741, um, she signs a treaty um, about the land and how much land um, her maroon group will be allocated um, and be left alone in that allocation. And so they were given 500 acres um, and it was called New Nanny Town. Um, and that was kind of at the end of the first maroon war. Um, it was later rebuilt New Nanny Town and it's called Moore Town and to this day it's called Moore Town in Jamaica. Um, and in 1781, the Assembly actually agreed to purchase another 500 acres from a neighbouring planter, Charles Douglas. Um, and so they increased Moore Town's communal land to about a thousand acres on the island. Maroon leaders such as Kujo and Kwao, um, who had agreed not to harbour new runaway slaves but to help catch them instead for bounties, um, and also fight for the British in case of an attack from the French or Spanish. Um, you know, the British, in a sense, did well because they had made a truce with this maroon group who were essentially irritating them. Um, but they also were protecting their money because slaves cost money and enslaved people running away meant that planters were losing money and planters would have been frustrated and planters would have been annoyed at the government for not doing more to stop these pesky maroons. So we're going to speak a little bit about Nanny's legacy um, and why she's remembered the way she is, um, more so than her brothers are, and none of them are national heroes, just to point out. And by the way, her brothers were not the only other maroon leaders, there were other maroon groups, and there was actually a second maroon war um, with some of the maroons in Trelawney, which is another area in Jamaica, um, that actually led to the deportation of some maroons, um, eventually back to Africa and to Sierra Leone by way of Canada. Um, we'll get into that story shortly. So um, this extract I'm going to read is from Lionheart Gal, um, Life Stories of Jamaican Women, written by Sistrin, or Calatis, should I say, as it is a group of um, short stories. Sistrin is an independent women's cultural organisation which works at advancing the awareness of its audiences on questions affecting Caribbean women. Sistrin means sisters um, in Patois or in a Caribbean dialect, um, and it's developed from an initiative of working-class women which started in 1977. It's best known for its theatre work, um, but it was among the first of a new wave of Caribbean women's organisations addressing questions of gender, class, violence, sexuality, ageing, women's history and women's work through theatre and through drama, through dance and music. I'm reading from a collection of short stories um, and I would recommend the text. Um, however, I will say it is completely in Patois. The short stories, the introduction isn't. And whilst I can understand Patois when it's spoken, reading it is a different 
different thing um, because, you know, there aren't really set grammar rules. Um, and so you kind of have to say it in your head as if you were speaking Patwa, which if you don't speak Patwa or can't understand Patwa, it could be confusing. However, um, I would still recommend this book. It's really good. And short stories do reveal a lot about the experience of Caribbean women with different um, kind of oppressions in terms of like sexuality or class or age. Um, and of course, gender and race. So let's get into this extract. Um, it's taken from the introduction, which gives the background of the kind of idea of a Caribbean woman and a stereotypical Caribbean woman in the history of the Caribbean. And so they speak about Ni, Nanny, um, another name for Nanny, that is, um, as a Maroon leader of the 18th century, um, and her image as a warrior woman, a priestess who led the Eastern Maroons in their fight against slavery. Maroon stories tell us that she was far more militant than Cujo, her brother that is, who led the Western Maroons. In 1740, when she learnt he had signed a treaty with the British, she was furious and vowed to continue hostilities. Now, those hostilities, I'm assuming, were against the British, but also maybe against um, Cujo, who had signed that treaty and, as I said earlier, sold out. Um, she did this until 1741, when she was granted a land patent in the parish of Portland, which is what I said um, allowed her to have those 500 acres of land. Um, and then that was... Um, doubled to a thousand um, when the land was purchased from a planter. Ni was not merely an exceptional woman. Her power was underpinned by several factors, material and cultural. It drew on the tradition of Ohima, the Ashanti Queen Mother, on the control which African women had over agriculture in maroon society, on the specific needs of the war effort, as well as the circumstances of sexuality which existed in rebel communities of the time. Other black women drew strength from these traditions too. Cuba, for example, was to have been the Queen of Kingston if the rebellion in which she was involved had succeeded and the earliest maroons of the 17th century had a Coromanti queen. The legacy of these women belongs to all Caribbean women who try to change oppressive circumstances in which they find themselves. This legacy belongs to women like those who speak in Lionheart Gal, which is the text I'm reading from. Um, and so I think in that extract and why I read it out is because it links these ideas of spirituality um, in a way, which I think are one of the reasons why Nanny has been erased in ways from history. And you might be thinking, well, she's widely recognised in Jamaica, and that is definitely the case. Um, but the fact that she's often dismissed as an Obia woman, um, Obia being known as um, black magic or kind of some dark spiritual ideologies and nothing... Um, like Christianity, which is the kind of ideal, idealistic and perfect religion in, in Jamaica, at least. And so because she steps away from that, she was obviously not Christian. You know, she was obviously in her mindset, not colonized and still in touch with her African spiritual practices. Um, she's often disregarded um, potentially as someone that is not to be necessarily a role model or a leader. Um, she drew on the ancestors for strength. Um, similarly, in the Haitian Revolution, they used voodoo um, and their spiritual practices that they had taken from their homelands of Africa um, and brought with them and passed on through generations. And so this idea that, you know, she didn't subscribe to Christianity, why would she? She wasn't, you know, colonised mentally by the British, um, I think has stood in her way of being properly, truly recognised and understood. One of my favourite stories, um, there's two in total, but one is the fact that, you know, she often 
had to find food for her maroons um, that she was leading. Um, and food's, food was hard to come by. Um, they are growing in the mountainous regions of Jamaica, um, not the most fertile land where all the plantations would have been to grow sugar um, because that was the main export out of Jamaica at the time. Queen Nanny was said to have, you know, called on the ancestors, look, we don't have any food, like, we don't know what to do, maybe it's time to give up. Um, and essentially woke up the next morning with three pumpkin seeds in her pocket um, and went out the next day and planted those pumpkin seeds. And pumpkins grew in abundance um, to the point that that mountain is still called Pumpkin Hill, um, that area of Jamaica, um, because of how many pumpkins grew and were able to feed that maroon community for a substantial period of time. That's one of the stories. um, And I think... The fact that that's passed down and has been passed down through oral traditions historically is all the more important. And now whilst we do write about these things because this history is slowly finding itself into the history books and on paper, um, these traditional stories are are still passed on in Jamaica. And I would also like to bring up another story um, which has its controversies of this idea of um, her military prowess um, and her ability to catch bullets. Now, it was an art form um, in some African areas, um, in West Africa, especially in terms of their warfare and the skills that they had in that training um, to catch bullets in their fingers um, and obviously to stop them from shooting at someone to catch them before that they could, you know, make impact with a person's body. Um, And so it was said that Nanny could do this. But it's also actually said that Queen Nanny would catch bullets in her bottom. Now, you might be thinking how vulgar and how rude and there is an argument um, and a story that it was actually the colonisers that really disliked Nanny, obviously. Um, She was essentially killing their men um, and resisting at every possible juncture, turn and corner um, in Jamaica. Um, They didn't like her, and so they kind of created this crude and really vulgar rumour or story about her catching bullets in her bottom, which, when you actually think about it, is quite unlikely. Although, then we bring in the ideas of spirituality and her calling on the ancestors um, to be able to survive and to be able to feed um, her her people. Um, maybe those stories aren't so far-fetched. So, you know, as I said, with oral traditions, we do have to leave room for <laughs> discrepancies um, and maybe several versions of a story. And you might be thinking, oh, well, how do we know what's true? Well, to be quite honest, how do we know what's true in any historical retelling of any story, um, whether it be about the Caribbean or Africa or Britain? Um, you know, all historians have a bias and they tell you these stories with that bias, myself included. I did mention earlier in this episode some of the Maroons that were deported back to Africa to Sierra Leone by way of Canada. So in 1795, there was an eight-month conflict between the Maroons and the British, the Second Maroon War, um, led by Cujo and the Maroons of Trelawney, which is another area of Jamaica. And, you know, this battle went on and on. Most would describe the battle to have been avoidable um, and it could have been dealt with diplomatically. I won't go into the reasons why because I want to focus on the aftermath. Um, But eventually a treaty was signed um, with General George Walpole and the Maroon leaders because the Maroons essentially had to surrender and the treaty said that they would beg on their knees for the king's forgiveness, return all runaway slaves and be relocated elsewhere in Jamaica. The governor ratified this treaty, um, however, only giving the Maroons three days to present themselves um, to beg for forgiveness. Um, The Maroons were obviously suspicious of the British intentions. Most of the Maroons did not surrender immediately and until mid-March, some of them as late as, uh, when this was happening in January um, and the conflict ended in December. Um, So... 
the British used um, this kind of breach of treaty, shall we say, um, as like a precedence to deport um, a lot of the Trelawney Town Maroons to um, an area called Nova Scotia. Um, and so, you know, General Walpole was actually, you know, quite disgusted by what the governor did because um, he had given the Maroons his word that he would not deport them off the island. Um, Walpole actually resigns and goes back to England um, and then, you know, deals with that situation in England. Um, however, these Maroons have been deported. Um to Nova Scotia, some stayed behind in Jamaica, some of them, you know, became free people of colour, as the term that they were known as, some died on the voyage, um, and then from there they were actually transported um, to Sierra Leone in West Africa, um, because they didn't want to, um, you know, be in Canada, it's obviously a bitter and cold country, um, and Britain had just settled in Sierra Leone, and so um, the British government allowed them to, to move there and they travelled to Freetown um, just at the start of the 19th century um, and that is where they established themselves. So the Maroons aren't just kind of situated in Jamaica, I guess, um, in ways this kind of forced migration has them in different parts of the world, um, as we can see from this story, which is quite a strange take, considering, like, Nanny's Maroons end up having their own town called Moortown. They have freedom and a free jurisdiction over um, their own affairs in Jamaica, um, separate to um, the Jamaican government. And so, to end this episode on Queen Nanny of the Maroons, I think it's a clear example of women resisting and a continuation on from last week's episode, where we looked at other women on different parts of the transatlantic slave trade, resisting the colonial powers that be. And as we can see Queen Nanny here not only resisting the Spanish in the first and earlier days but also the British and refusing to sign um, the treaty that other Maroon leaders signed um, before her and so that is why she's recognised that is why her face is on a $500 bill there are statues of her you know her grave um, and the area that she is allegedly buried in in Moortown is still um, held and regarded in the highest esteem and she is honoured on the island um, as, you know, the only uh, female national hero. And so we honour Queen Nanny of the Maroons this week in this episode. And I'm sure if anyone is listening of Jamaican descent or is Jamaican, you'll have heard so many other stories about Queen Nanny um, that I have not even got time to go into and mention or may not have even heard um, because it is an oral history. There are so many tales about her life and the things she did. And so... I hope this episode um, has paid tribute to that and you have understood um, another black woman resisting um, historically. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Please follow us um, on the relevant Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, we are on YouTube. Please subscribe to the channel. There will be new content coming out soon whilst we post the back episodes that have already gone. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.